This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Big Finishes. Wyatt Earp's Vendetta Run. Plotting Mysteries. And Chrononaut Potato Chips. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. The triumphant final strains of Frampton Comes Alive the successful hunt for that last missing D4, the sense that the file folders are being gotten out for the last time, the character sheets put away, ordering Chinese food instead of pizza, tell us that we have entered a finality, a, if you will, benedictory session of the Gaming Hut. But we are not saying farewell to the Gaming Hut itself. Oh no, we could never do that. It's uh, friendly confines. Confine us too friendly for that. We are instead talking about Ending a campaign, that great moment of uh, hopefully triumph and always uh, regret as you end the campaign, move out, and get ready for the next one. Robin, you just ended a campaign. You ended a pretty big, exciting one. Was it like other campaign endings, or are there gen general rules that you pulled up out of that moment? Um, I thought it went really well, but there's sort of a, a gestalt to uh, pulling off a really uh, big finish, like any game session. Some of them go better than others. Sometimes a whole campaign gels. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it struggles and occasionally shows moments of, of brilliance. But in this instance, I thought I particularly needed to pull out all the stops to have a great uh, feng shui ending. Because, of course, we know that's the game of 
Hong Kong movie action role-playing, so we needed a big sort of action movie type finish. And uh, I was pretty happy with how it came out. And so uh, some of the things that this session had, I think, are things that you want to shoot for either intuitively or by planning ahead for them or some variation thereof. Uh, One of them is that, of course, you want your campaign to escalate. You want the final sessions to really feel big and really feel that they have uh, confidence and moment so that if it was an action movie, that it really would be the the third act of a really thrilling film. Or if you're trying to emulate more of a sort of a TV series vibe, that it's like a really great series climax of which there are uh, not that many examples because it's something that's really easy to whiff in that format. And so in this instance, the stakes uh, rose uh, the way that they should in Feng Shui but over the fate of the world and the timeline and all of the different four junctures that the main villain had uh, uh, taken over hell and transformed it into a Tron-like electronic hell. And <laughs> oh, no. oh, no. A Tron sequel and hell. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you really stack it up for them. Yeah, and there's a, a whole Disney thing going on. There's a, one of the hell rooms was, uh, instead of the, you know, the the hell of dismemberment that used to be there when it was regular Chinese hell, now it was the, the hell of being trapped in the small world uh, ride forever. Um, and so anyway, they, they'd taken everything over, and so this was the big uh, battle for the whole future of uh, four time periods and all of mankind and all of that, so that it had uh, this sort of classic big stakes. And, of course, the definition of what big stakes are uh, differs from one campaign to the next, but even, you know, something that is comparatively genteel, like a Cthulhu campaign, of course, can often lead to you averting the end of the world. Uh, That's a trope that works or appears much more often in role-playing than it did in uh, Lovecraft's own work. And that's, I think, because of our desire to have something that escalates at the end and gets to the biggest possible stakes. Ken, how do you, have you uh, invoked high stakes at the end of your campaign climaxes? A lot of times the high stakes come natural. Like you say, if it's a Cthulhu campaign, you know that the uh, monsters are up to something. They're going to summon Cthulhu or awaken near Lothotep or um, uh, whatever is going to happen is, go- is going to be a, a, n- a known apocalypse, even if it's not going to happen like that weekend, you know, that you're the last chance to stop, you know, the, the Yogg-Sothoth cult or whatever, and that they're going to raise Yogg-Sothoth and, and destroy the world at, at X time. Uh, other times I, you know, I start by salting, uh, if, if the setting is strong and can withstand it, I start by salting the end of the setting at the beginning so that the characters come in knowing that something is going uh, wrong and differently in my recent Nobilis game. Um, I salted the conspiracy by the former power of secret knowledge to depower all the Nobilis and uh, take all their cosmic power and give equal shares of it to all uh, sentient beings in the world. Um, and the Nobilis felt that this was a bad thing. And so they, but they sort of saw the beginnings of this plot happen and then, you know, I tried to time their discovery of what the plot was for the campaign arc so that the campaign tension would ramp up as they discovered more about the the plot. And I actually, um, I had it set to a specific campaign calendar, although I, I didn't really have to, uh, so that, you know, they discovered it at, like, um, uh, the, I forget it was like the spring solstice or something like that, and they realized that the next spring was going to be the last 
you know, moment of, uh, you know, was going to be the spring of, of the new humanity. And so that they had a year to, to, to track it down. Uh, other times you can open up, uh, the bigger stakes, you know, right there, right? You, you just show up, uh, like, let's say in a superhero campaign, you, you know, know that every alien invasion you don't stop is going to be the alien invasion, right? There's not like there's going to be a minor alien invasion and then a, a major one. Even the minor one is going to give them a, a foothold and they'll take over. So some things, the, the stakes are, are, are right there. And other things, as you mentioned, the stakes aren't apocalyptic except within the lives of the characters. So it's more about, will a given character, you know, be able to survive and thrive? Uh, in the science fiction game, they averted an interstellar war, basically, um, which led them into the, the, the promised era of peace. But that was not so much an apocalypse. It was just, well, we know that something happens between now and the and the agreement that mankind and the, I forget who they were, Beetlejuicens or whoever will, will, will unify. And whether that's because we are conquered by the Beetlejuicens or not, we don't know that. That's up to you. Another thing that you're um, moving toward is the idea of this is when the personal storylines of the various player characters can resolve. Feng Shui does that very explicitly, or at least it sets them up very explicitly by giving each character a melodramatic hook. But you can certainly in most games find sort of an equivalent for that, or at least look at what has emerged during play as the personal storyline of each player character, and then try to find ways to uh, pay as many of those off as possible. So in uh, this instance, for example, uh, Rachel's character uh, had been searching for her brother, found him, discovered that he was an assassin working for the Ascended. Well, of course, so he shows up during the final assault on hell in which all of the other factions unite to put down this new scary force. Uh, that also allowed the masked Avengers errant wife who turned out to be a, a spy on him for the ascended to be there as well. And of course she has the uh, tragic death that he uh, mourns and uh, the uh, player of that particular character decided that it was apropos not to attempt a death check and to voluntarily fail it so that he could uh, die uh, on top of his already dead wife and the uh, canto pop music could play. So that uh, you're introducing into what has heretofore been sort of a serial format an element of finality, not just for one character, because of course one character can die at any point in any role-playing game where death is an option, but everybody's storyline somehow wraps up and changes. So the transformed dragon transformed back into a dragon as part of the big climax so that there were personal transformations to accompany this big sort of resetting of the world status quo back to normal so that they made the world normal again, but they themselves had all been changed in one way or another, mostly by the events of, of what went on. The uh, demon character who'd been trying to free the demons from the slavery of the Eaters of the Lotus, he discovered that he was the only demon left now. And so some of these things imply a possible sequel down the road, and others of them uh, contain a great deal of finality. But if you have players who are game, they will pull you in the direction they want to go if you throw them enough sort of chum that allows them to resolve their uh, storylines and bid a big farewell to their characters. Yeah, the, um, the, the, if you can build an organic desire for the that the characters have for something, in addition, ideally, to stopping Dracula or stopping Gog-Sothoth or stopping uh, alien empires, and then tie off those storylines, ideally as part of the climax, such that personal and, and uh, campaign 
stories uh, link up and, and are unified, but if you can just do it in time, you know, the, the moment at which they, they find their, their dead brother or, or whatever uh, happens as a result of or in addition to all of the other things or that their act of finding their dead brother gives them the final strength they need to stop Nirlathotep, maybe, that you create some sort of reinforcing thematic moment. I think that you can you can drive that. Obviously, not all players want their characters to have a full-on, you know, uh, romantic or, or personal story arc. A lot of times, they're they're there for one or another reason, as uh, as you as we have both pointed out and you pointed out uh, in text. Even um, I, I think that another thing that you can do in terms of bringing sort of a, an endpoint is if you have a um, and I'm not going to say necessarily an element of the setting, but if there's an element of the of the actual gameplay that you haven't been doing, maybe you haven't been using miniatures, or you haven't been using all of the mass combat rules, or you haven't been using some aspect that will make the game uh, play feel like it's up at the next level, that might be a thing that you can do with a with a finality that drives it. The, the caution there is just to make sure that it's, it may be something that you haven't used yet in this series, but it has to be something that you're confident is going to run really well and smoothly because the last thing you want in a big climactic episode is to break out a new rule subsystem and then struggle with it because you want the pacing to really uh, crackle along. Yeah. Often what I, what I will do is there will be a couple of things that happen before the big conclusion where I do change ups you know, we do a lower deck story where you're playing other characters who see the the events hurtling toward their conclusion and help it out in some way, or you play a um, uh, an abstracted version of the story. You know, uh, running ahead with with, in, in, with a with a story game or something else that that will let you pull all of the other plot threads together, and then end as you say with a with a more standard actual experience of play on the actual final day. But something that I think. You have to have, or you don't have to have at all, but it's nice to have the equivalent, uh, ludically, of the music getting more intense and the filter changing or, you know, the physical sensation that you only see you have a few pages left under your thumb. Any of the ways that we get ourselves excited for the ending of things in other art forms, it can be harder to do in a role-playing game because the actual lived experience is so very similar, you know, night after night after night, right? Right. Another thing that I was very happy with in this instance was that it paid off something that was introduced in the very first session. So that if you can find a way to uh, agree, to have your ending agree with your beginning, which is something you always want to do in fiction, but is a lot harder to manage in uh, any sort of improvised uh, story form, uh, it sort of has a much more power and unity to it. So in this instance, a character, Sylvan Master, who they encountered as sort of a computer upload version of a past now dead member of the Dragons, uh, even in the first session, they started to feel that there was maybe something a little alarming about possibly dealing with this character and, and giving him what he wanted. But uh, as is uh, true of my villains, as I mentioned last week, he had useful things for them and was kind of helpful. And for a while he was helping them get feng shui sites and stuff. And of course, uh, as, and that allowed it sort of a great development from sort of a kind of a 
kooky information supplying character who evolved all the way into the big bad villain at the end. And then, of course, their taking down the big bad villain gave them more of a sense of having had a big epic storyline than if the big bad had only showed up for the last three episodes. Mm -hmm. So um, you may plan ahead of time to... You know, this is the element that I'm going to pay off over the course of the whole campaign, or just as likely something that you just kind of threw in, because when I threw him in, I, you know, that was not my purpose with that character necessarily, but he took on a life of his own and, and we went that way with him. So retrospectively, as you near the end of your campaign, if you can look at things that were set up at the beginning that you can then bring back and possibly transform and put a new spin on and introduce into this bigger stakes plot line, uh, the more of a sense of uh, unity that your whole campaign will then achieve. Yeah, callbacks are a big part, I think, not just of, of running the finale. Obviously, they're a big part of running the finale, but I think they're a big part of making a campaign feel like a campaign. Even if you're running the most picaresque possible F20 campaign, at the very least, the orcs that you kill in Adventure 20 should know, recollect, remind you of uh, be wearing the discarded, stabbed armor of the orcs you killed in, you know, 3 and 6 and 11. Because that's how you build it into a world, as opposed to sort of just a, a series of still photos of a, of a world, I guess. And obviously, as you, the more narratively you intend your, your game to be, because of course, not all campaigns are narratives in the sense that, that we're talking about that have an ending, that have a, a big uh, conclusion, climax, whatever, they just finish because people are done playing that version of D&D and now they want to play Traveler, or they're done playing uh, Call of Cthulhu and now they want to play D&D, or, or whatever it is, right, that they've just swapped it out. Yeah, because if the player's ultimate goal for the series are, I want to get Cloud Kill... Uh, you keep going till they get cloud kill and kill something really awesome with cloud kill, yeah. and then you call it a day. Ideally, and, a cloud, I guess. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, or, or someone who's afraid of clouds, one or the other. Right. Yes. <laughs> now you will quaver under my cloud of cloud kill. Right. So if, if you've got someone who loves the, the procedural stuff, you build the you know the ultimate dungeon encounter where you know you've tuned it as much as possible to be just over the edge of a TPK, and for them the whole. Uh, climax will be this will be the best fight ever and they can then uh, talk about those whose characters survive can talk about how cool their characters were so even in that um, much more sort of uh, constrained uh, gamey set of assumptions you can still obviously build to a big finish and the whole f20 structure is all about that it does that for you because the characters get bigger and bigger as they go along and the creatures get bigger and bigger until it all becomes completely unmanageable and you go and start over or play something else. Mm -hmm. Another thing that you can do that can help sort of create that, that sense of completion and conclusion is to put more and more of the world's decision-making power, as much as you can anyway, logically, into the hands of the player characters. If there have been helpful NPCs around, they should die or be rendered into inanition or, you know, go to Vermont to raise the perfect avocado, or something should happen to them to funnel the story towards the player characters. And obviously you can't necessarily do that in, say, a World War II game where you're playing a tank crew driving across the muddy fields of, of Germany um, because you, you can't, you know, come over the radio and President, uh, you know, General Eisenhower has turned the whole war over to you, boys. That's not going to happen necessarily, but you if you've had NPCs 
on the scale that the players are, are interacting with, those guys can be, you know, taken out by an artillery strike or redeployed to a different front or something such that it really does feel like the end of this story is all about them. Because the, the last thing that you want, if you're having a big apocalypse or you're having any kind of big, satisfying conclusion, is to know that, well, whatever we do is going to be fine because Elminster and the League of Extraordinary Elminsters are going to actually stop the, the real apocalypse in the next county over. You want the story to, as much as possible, funnel down into the player character's experience. And, of course, if you've been running it correctly, it always feels like it's about them, but you want to reinforce that by having their NPCs visibly pass on the torch or just plain pass on. Right, and and that's uh, something I was going to mention, actually, is don't be afraid to destroy portions of a beloved setting in order to create a sense of finality. Because, uh, after all, if you want to go back and play this later, you can say, oh, well, you know, this isn't picking up where we left off. This is a reboot or whatever. So mm -hmm. kill Elminster. Or in the case of uh, the Feng Shui Climax, uh, their favorite sort of canonical character, Battlechimp Patenkpin, uh, died horribly in front of their eyes. Oh. And, so, uh, and they were genuinely shocked by that because, of course, if... Feng Shui was a movie property or a comic book or whatever, you would never kill off Battlechimp Potemkin, uh, or if you did, you knew he'd be coming back eventually. Mm -hmm. But here there was a real uh, sense of, of shock, even though there's no particular uh, reason or constraint that would uh, require me to keep all of the iconic characters alive, especially because, you know, the NPCs are there in order to create effects in the storyline and uh, dying horribly in order to underline the set of stakes and the set of uh, uh, the sense of things changing uh, is something that they're absolutely made to do. Yeah. Um, and on that note, I think uh, in a sense of having a big finish, it's time we finished this segment and went on to the next. This episode is also brought to you by the Plot Points Podcast. Plot Points views role-playing games through the lens of literature. Plot Points takes a deep look at adventures from dozens of systems. Discover the link between Pathfinder's We Be Goblins and the poetry of Christina Rossetti. Learn how the recession of 2008 aided the recent flowering of geek culture. Can a role-playing game have a political leaning? Hear about a friendly local game store that pays Game Masters. How can gaming give meaning to life other than by paying Game Masters? Listen to an advanced review of the Dracula dossier. Well, I'm sold. Need we say more? Probably not, but there are still a couple of bullet points left. Novices and grizzled veterans can both find something to enjoy. Entire episode on the Dracula dossier, people. Find the Plot Points podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or at plotpoints.libsyn.com. Listen to us, then listen to them. It's time again for Among My Many Hats, the segment in which the covert self-promotion of this podcast becomes overt self-promotion. And in this case, Ken is wearing a hat that looks a lot like a Stetson of the Old West that a gunslinger might wear because he's here to tell us about the latest installment of Ken Writes About Stuff, which is, of course, the subscription of Ken-related awesomeness that you can get via our fine friends at Pelgrim Press. And in this instance, 
you're here to tell us about your Wyatt Earp installment of KWAS. So, Ken, uh, what lots of historians over the years have talked about uh, Earp. It's an even more interesting uh, real-life story than you usually see it boiled down to in the length of a movie, because there's more than a movie's worth of narrative there. So what did you choose to focus on in writing about Wyatt Earp? You refer, of course, to uh, the Ken Writes About Stuff single, Vendetta Run. I do indeed. So Ken, Wyatt Earp has been covered in a whole lot of ways over the years. How did you cover him in Vendetta Run? The brief was for a setting that could be a weird western setting that would be usable for the upcoming fear itself second edition something that you could you could drop in and play in fear itself second or as it turns out of course in fear itself first because fear itself second isn't done so i had to write it for fear itself first and so i was trying to decide what in the west is a survival horror moment, right? What what lets you know that you are basically doomed to die and there's nothing you can do about it? And so I suggested a bunch of possibilities to Simon. I said, how about a thing where the ghost dance worked and you're the last five white men left? And how about a thing where... I, I didn't just want to sort of blah, blah, zombies, blah, blah, because you can fight zombies without my help. But the other thing that I thought was, well, I'll tell you who is doomed is any poor bastard who Wyatt Earp decides is doomed. And especially in sort of the legendary Wyatt Earp, which is the best one, although the real Wyatt Earp is actually pretty great too, there is the moment in his lifetime when after his brother has been shot and his other brother has been shot and killed, uh, Wyatt Earp uh, becomes a vigilante and he rounds up a bunch of fellow uh, vigilantes and they decide to ride out and kill everyone who killed his brother. And indeed they do. And I thought, well, that's a pretty terrifying thing to have Wyatt Earp no longer constrained by law uh, and simply riding out to kill you because he was a very dangerous fellow in his own right and his buddy Doc Holliday was even more dangerous and he had a no- number of other very dangerous friends and relatives who, you know, once Wyatt Earp says, you know what, everyone else is shooting people without uh, recourse to the law, let's do us some of that. That would be pretty terrifying. And so I thought, well, now that you've got that concept, amp it up, make it more supernatural. And so you are not just being hunted down by Wyatt Earp, rightfully so. You are being hunted down by the sort of spectral, horrible Wyatt Earp from uh, the great Star Trek episode Spectre of the Gun and sort of a, a mythologized uh, spirit of vengeance, if you will, that I sort of turned Earp and his posse into. And you, of course, are playing uh, members of the Cowboys, uh, the, the Clanton gang, broadly speaking, who have angered Wyatt Earp enough that now you have entered this sort of hell on earth, uh, the, the sort of uh, great, dark, weird West to be hunted down. So the, the notion of putting Wyatt Earp in came from thinking what would hunt you down and never stop. What, what is the, the Wild West version of the Terminator? And of course, it turns out to have been actually, in real life, Wyatt Earp. So standard fear itself tells you to specify for each player character the worst thing you've ever done. And presumably in this instance, that's the thing that Earp is hunting you for. It doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, there's a, the, the question that you answer here is not what's the worst thing you've ever done, because you are, by definition, a thief, murderer, and accomplice to murder if you are a cowboy. The the question is, what is your darkest secret? I guess what you should explain here uh, for a moment is that the word cowboy at the time was invented to uh, describe these particular people and was not at that point a generic term. Well, it may or may not have been a generic term, just like blood might be a generic term, but it is also the, the term for a group of cattle rustlers and horse thieves that operated 
across the southern Arizona border and a little bit over into New Mexico. But they basically existed to steal cattle and horses, take them to Mexico and sell them to, uh, you know, basically to fence them uh, across the border where they couldn't be stopped. And they were a large, very uh, effective uh, criminal organization that sort of ran southern Arizona up until the, uh, the Earps showed up and the Earps uh, wanted no part of this. Right. And they had local power in the economy mm-hmm. and they... Uh, and they had the basic, sheriff. <laughs> yeah. And, and basically their position was that like, you know, members of a, an old tribe of uh, Mongols or something that, uh, you know, raiding cattle was just part of business. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole sort of political conflict with uh, with Earp and his gang over uh, whether... Uh, so it is the classic Western conflict of uh, lawlessness versus uh, civilization. And I guess here in this scenario... Uh, you're on the side of lawlessness and you're about to get mowed down by civilization or a, a spectral demonic parody of it. Right, yeah. And so the, the, the question is, um, uh, is what is your darkest secret, which is what may or may not have anything to do with the worst thing you've ever done, but you're, uh, you're already assumed to have done something so horrible merely by being a cowboy that you are going to deserve death at the hands of the herbs. And so your darkest secret you know, you can use that as a role-playing, you know, just to inform your role-playing, or I op- offer the possibility that if the cowboy reveals or allows to be revealed his darkest secret, that's how you live through a scene. And so um, uh, that that allows sort of the prolongation of your agony, and that then, ideally, uh, the, there is enough tension going on within the party that then people will give you crap for it. And this sounds to me like something that would do really well in a convention format or some other one-shot where the... Or, or miniseries, I guess, where the players know going in that they're there to get wiped out or most of them will get wiped out and that the uh, fun is, first of all, prolonging your survival for the course of the adventure so that it's other players who, who bite it first, mm-hmm. but also that you can buy into uh, more of the idea that A, you're doomed and B, that you deserve it. Because one of the things about if I was to see this in, uh, you know, filmed form, it has the formula where the people who are being destroyed by the horror kind of have it coming. Yeah. And to my mind, the the really scary stuff is not when bad people uh, get destroyed, but when good people are destroyed by it for no reason. So presumably you can also do an alternate take on it where uh, Wyatt Earp just thinks you're the cowboys. And you could even do like a modern sequel where, you know, you just make the mistake of, you know, carrying the wrong antique gun mm-hmm. and that wakes up a uh, Erp and his gang and send them after you and um, you know there's no way to repent or to prove your innocence because he doesn't believe your innocence and there's nothing to repent from. Yeah, the, the the notion is that it's survival horror. It's not you know necessarily supposed to be you know survivable. That's why it's called survival horror. Exactly. Um, and there, there was a lot of, of doors you left open and I'm going to run past them and fire into all of them if, if I can. <laughs> but there, there are lots of good survival horror movies in which people who do deserve death then realize that the horror at which, at which hands they will die is still well out of proportion to the crime. There's a great, uh, non-supernatural survival horror film called This Is Not a Love Song in which it's a couple of guys who are thieves and crummy people and sort of accidentally complicit in a death and then they are hunted down by a sort of wicker man without the magic collective of in, in of interrelated northerners northern british people and they're hunted across the the bleak moors of yorkshire and die 
horribly at the end. And the horror is very, very real, even though the, the, the main characters are not at all sympathetic people. But the sheer implacability of the horror pitted against them creates right. sympathy. There's a turn in, in when these things are working where you switch from uh, sort of scorning these characters to uh, feeling for them and sympathizing with them, as you suggest, because of the, the scale of uh, what it is that they're faced with is is way bigger and eviler than whatever it is uh, they did. I'm thinking, I guess, more of the sort of the Stephen King thing where there are so many of his things where you're the question is whether you're rooting for people to get killed off mm-hmm. and, and any instance in which you are, uh, you know, rooting for people, however flawed to survive, I think does work and is horrific. And it's easy to do in a role playing context because you are literally identifying with these people. And then uh, there is a Owl Hoot Trail build-out at the tail end of, of this uh, Kawaz single that lets you play a scenario in which you are not the cowboys, you are just, you, you've uh, accrued the cowboy curse, and the Earps are still going to hunt you down, because that's what they do. Um, and so if you wanted to use that as the opener for even a Fear Itself type thing, you could still do it. You'd just have to introduce the supernatural a little earlier than I think is ideal in, you know, in terms of as the herbs are chasing you, you realize slowly that, oh, this is much worse than we thought it was. And that's the turn at which genuine supernaturalism begins to sort of uh, become overt and show up that you have that moment of putative audience sympathy for the, for the cowboys who, who nonetheless deserve it. And you can sort of fast forward it into the modern era well as well and sort of posit that, you know, these, once you're a phantom specter, you know, you're t- you exist outside of time. And so you could do one in which it's survival horror in which you are uh, undocumented migrants attempting to cross the border. And you've got, uh, instead of the regular border patrol, you run into uh, the ghost, uh, ghostly Wyatt Earp and his men. And then uh, you are, uh, you know, maybe you got across the border, but he's cut you off and they're chasing you. And that uh, gives you another level of in this case, you're a more sympathetic protagonist mm-hmm. uh, being hunted, and that gives you sort of a different kind of modern uh, perspective on the whole uh, format. Um, well, before we uh, jump out of this hat and into the next segment, is there anything else you want to underline about uh, Wyatt Earp? We could do whole, a whole different, uh, a whole nother segment, a whole nother hut on Wyatt Earp. I think that uh, anyone who's interested should read Inventing Wyatt Earp by Alan Barra, which talks about the historiography of Earp and how people have seen him over the last uh, hundred years, and how the depiction of Earp has changed depending on the agenda of not just the artist, but also the sort of zeitgeist. Uh, Westerns respond to the zeitgeist uh, just as much as horror, and for much the same reason, because that's what uh, the job of myths is, is to do that in a lot of ways. And also, there is um, a kind of fun thing in this particular uh, Kawa's single, the intra-party interpersonal combat system, which I uh, lifted uh, out of Skullduggery, and in which individual uh, interpersonal abilities trump other interpersonal abilities so that you can force player characters to go along with your scheme so that the player characters will all be angry at each other, which is another ideal component of survival horror. Uh, well, on that note, I think uh, we should all run from the specter of Wyatt Earp, perhaps to the next segment.
Robin, I know what you've been saying. You'd love to invite ghouls into your game, but what about the expense? It's true, Ken. There's nothing I'd love better than having gibbering, corpse-eating, dog-headed monsters with me at all times, but I have to watch my dollars. Well, now you can have both. Horrific graveyard entities and your dollars. Because the KWAS single, Hideous Creatures Ghouls, is free for a limited time. What? That means I can bring all kinds of horrid ghouls with wildly dangerous and unpredictable powers and statistics into my living room. That's right, Robin. Like all the Hideous Creatures issues, Ghouls gives you lots of new ways to change familiar monsters into something even worse to keep your players on their toes and on the run. And their characters too, right? Um, sure. It's also got rules for ghoul changelings and becoming a ghoul, and ghoulish clues for every ability in Trail of Cthulhu, as well as legendary ghouls, contradictory ghoul truths, and tasty gobbits of scenario. Well, when Ken writes about stuff, you know it's going to be legendary, contradictory, and... Gobbit rich. And now it's free, just lying around like an unburied body waiting for you to devour it. In a gaming sense, that is. Um, sure. Follow the filthy splayed footprints, or the link in the show notes, to all the ghouls you could ever wish for. And more! That's Hideous Creatures Ghouls, a free KWA single from Pelgrane Press. The chuttering of the IBM Selectric, the gurgle of quality bourbon into less quality glassware, the creak of the springs as one leans back in one's uh, desk chair looking for inspiration anywhere but the blank unforgiving cursor tell us that we have entered the friendly but unforgiving confines of the how place that we write the good how writing hut of how to write good. And Robin, <laughs> here as... We write good in our how. Um, we we stumble not yes, only. it's not how to talk good. <laughs> how to talk good. We stumble not only over the um, uh, traditional pile of books and grammar at the entrance, but also we stumble into plotting pitfalls. And you have specific uh, ways that plots can uh, not necessarily even go off the rails, but completely out of the uh, out of the experience of plot. And uh, you're you're looking at, I, I suppose, the mystery of who screwed up the plot. Right, or specifically mystery plotting. We've talked right. a lot on uh, this podcast about designing investigative scenarios for role-playing, and I thought that we would talk a bit about the problems of plotting mysteries in fiction, which um, in a lot of ways are kind of the inverse of the problems of role-playing uh, mystery scenarios. And uh, this is inspired by seeing the recent... Uh, John Cusack film The Raven, which I went into uh, knowing that it was not going to be any good because nobody liked it. Um, and But it was the uh, best kind of bad film, uh, not a film that is so bad that it's good, uh, but from the point of view of a writer, a film that is instructive in why it doesn't work. And uh, it is actually a uh, bad idea competently executed. And uh, what the bad idea is, is that basically... It has Poe facing a murderer who is uh, recreating the murders in his uh, fiction in order to stimulate him back into writing again. And it's set on the last day of Poe's life. And there are a number of uh, classic mystery plotting problems that you want to make sure that you're uh, avoiding as you create a mystery story. And I thought I would focus on a couple of them and then we can build out from there to other things that you want to spot in your outline before you write the whole thing and, and get rid of or change. And so one of these is that it's a cat and mouse uh, sort of mystery setup 
in which the detectives, and there's a police officer in this instance as well as Poe, are always one step behind the bad guy. So it's one of those ones where he's teasing them by sending them clues, sending them on a scavenger hunt, and they're just following those clues along, and they're never really discovering things on their own, or they're always discovering things too late. And I would argue that this sort of misses the whole enjoyable pleasure of the mystery genre in that you are, uh, it's no longer about problem solving, but it's about being led around by the nose. And this is one thing where if you did it in role-playing, it would be even more clearly a problem because players would start to object to the fact that they are never achieving anything, that they're just being led from point A to point B to point C and dragged uh, through the narrative. And what that suggests is that the unseen villain is really the protagonist in terms of the person who uh, controls the action and sets it in motion. So you have to always make sure that uh, your... Uh, the whole cat and mouse has to at least allow the mouse to solve some problems and not just be buffeted around completely by the cat. And another problem that this uh, has is that once you get to the end of the mystery and the mystery is solved, the person who turns out to be the uh, bad guy behind everything is someone you haven't really noticed and don't care about. <laughs> the smaller version of that story is make sure, if it's a whodunit... Vice President John Tyler. <laughs> well, that would have been much more interesting. <laughs> but uh, you have to make sure that we, uh, when we find out whodunit, we actually uh, care whodunit. Uh, and more generally, you have to make sure that your reveal of the mystery is at least as interesting as the chase. And that's the thing that is always really difficult to pull off, is ensuring that the revelation is even bigger than the fun of the mystery. And there are tons of different mystery stories and all sorts of different uh, genres over the years that have failed that test of which, uh, for example, Twin Peaks was one of the, uh, the biggest examples of something where uh, not knowing who killed Laura Palmer is way more interesting than any possible answer could ever be. Right. Ken, are there other sort of uh, signpost plotting dilemmas in the mystery genre that you'd like to point out? I think I should begin by giving a tip of my hat to the rules of the Detection Club, which were the old uh, gang of um, uh, uh, Dorothy Sayers and, uh, and Agatha Christie and, and all those, uh, you know, uh, John Dixon Carr, and, and the sort of the old school of mysteries, and Ronald Knox uh, codified their commandments. Uh, the criminal must be mentioned in the story, but must not be anyone whose thoughts the reader has been allowed to know. So if you have an omnis, if you have a uh, first-person narrative character who turns out to be the murderer, that is a that is a cheat. Not not more than one secret room or passage, which I think I like that one. No yeah. hitherto undiscovered poisons or scientific appliances. Uh, maybe so, so you can't make up a new murder method. Right, but... you can't. Um, I'm I'm very fond of Rule Five. No Chinaman must figure in the story. <laughs> <laughs> that may have been specific to a time and place. <laughs> yes. Uh, rule six, no accident must ever help the detective, nor must he ever have an unaccountable intuition which proves to be right. This is something that even very good writers do, is that the uh, the character... I mean, Ellery Queen, for God's sakes, would do this all the time. Ellery Queen would... would put together a mystery that by and large plays very fair with you and is, is usually, you know, ranking right along. And then Ellery will have a nightmare. And in the nightmare, he will have sort of an image-ish 
notion. And it's like, no, this is just Ellery Queen's process. It's how he puts together the mystery. It's like, on the other hand, it's how the, the, the author best case scenario is spoiling his own novel and worst case scenario is deliberately dumping more confusing nonsense into his novel. Uh, and I, I hate dream sequences in, in mysteries and, uh, they're always terrible. And, um, uh, I, I would put that under Ronald Knox's number six, uh, the detective must not commit the crime, which of course, uh, Christie violated, uh, uh, as her, you know, see you later suckers moment. Right. But she, she's done that. Yeah. You can't, that's, that's a yeah, one shot. That's right. I want to move back before you go on actually to the, um, the <laughs> flash of intuition thing, because right. it's a, a crutch that you see a lot. Um, and it's one uh, that is often used to try and yoke the dramatic side of the story together to the procedural side. And uh, it really is uh, a crutch. And once you start to see it, it's hard to start unseeing it. So, for example, in its kind of rocky, wayward second season, Sleepy Hollow is relying on this a lot, where the uh, the two lead characters will be having their uh, meaningful discussion about the importance of their comradeship, and then one of them will say uh, something emotional to the other, and it will spark usually Ichabod to go, oh, this, well, oh, of that puts me in mind of this fact about the case. And he is, uh, you know, putting things together, but it's sort of an, you know, it's not that the clue is falling from the sky, but it is pretty trite and obvious and, and easy to see and something that, like uh, hidden passageways, you should uh, restrict yourself pretty heavily on. Mm -hmm. and, and you certainly shouldn't, in a serial uh, format, you shouldn't do it over and over and over again. That, I think, is one of the flaws of the second season of not this become Sleepy Hollow Hut, but uh, that I think that they are leaning back a little more on their formula, that it's not and I guess at some level that it can't be as zany ever as first season was because nothing can be that zany again. But they've, they've, they've very rapidly found a formula and are, you know, um, uh, hiding out in it a, a lot. And I think that that's a problem if you're writing a serial character or you're writing a bunch of different mysteries. And obviously anyone who's read certainly a bunch of classical mysteries, but even a bunch of police procedurals can start seeing formula elements tick in and assuming that you love the character enough, you don't really mind that. But I think that, you know, if you read all of the Peter Whimsey stories, Dorothy Sayers is deliberately over and over and over trying to break her formula so that she doesn't fall back into writing just an endless series of the same thing happening in the same order uh, to basically the same kind of people, the way that say the very delightful, but not, literarily as good uh, Gideon Fell mysteries of, of John Dixon Carr are. Are there other items on that list that you want to... On, on, uh, let's see. The detective must not commit the crime. We talked about that one. The detective has to declare the clues. Uh, Sherlock Holmes always violates that, and it annoys <laughs> me, although, again, we love Sherlock Holmes. The, the sidekick uh, must never conceal from the reader his observations, which is sort of like you can't have a narrator who uh, hides uh, facts from you. Um, and the last one is twin brothers must not appear unless we have been duly prepared for them. <laughs> so <laughs> one of the, another one of the more specific ones on the list. Yes. Um, uh, so you keep your, your, your twin brothers and your Chinamen out and you are good to go with a, uh, with, with a golden age mystery novel, I guess. But I think that, that, that's, a, that's sort of a, the same sort of thing where one of the rules of the mystery specifically is the degree to which you're playing fair. And, I think you can do a twin brother story that is interesting, but it can't be the climax. It has to be something that is revealed early enough that you, the reader, can enjoy the interplay 
of the twin brother story. And for example, in uh, Doom 3, the most recent of the grand Bollywood heist series, uh, there is a big reveal that um, uh, Amir Khan is, is a twin, but it is revealed halfway through the film. So you then get to watch the rest of the film with the excitement of, of seeing how that plays out. And that's a heist movie, not really a mystery anyway. But uh, there, are, there are other twin things that I don't know if I want to spoiler or not. And some of them work and some of them don't. And I think generally when they work, the twinness was revealed early and then that deepens the horror or that deepens the mystery rather than necessarily saying, oh, he's a twin. All right, now what am I doing? Right. Another thing to look at is your sort of shift in reality level that if you are establishing something in an essentially realist mode, that I think you have some responsibility to confine the nature of the crimes and the motivations of the bad guys to something that has happened at least once in human history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's um, fair. <laughs> and so uh, there are certain sort of uh, mystery slash thrillers that the characters exist on sort of a more mythic, kooky, psychodrama of fantasy level than they do in, in a realistic mode. And so uh, the film of Gone Girl, for example, is one that I would... Uh, without going into details because it's just hitting DVD now, is uh, one in which the presentation is essentially realist, but uh, after a while you realize that the in terms of the way people are portrayed, you're living in a world that's much closer to Hannibal Lecter, or not in terms yeah. of its gore, but in terms of uh, how realistic the characters are, or basic instinct, than you are uh, in what you expect to be. And so if you're going to do that kind of um, reality shift, and obviously, you know, this was hugely popular. And I think the reason that film appeals to people is because it has that sort of weird mythic zeitgeisty thing that uh, Basic Instinct had in its day. Uh, but you're then playing outside essentially the rules of um, the mystery and you're moved into the rules of the thriller. And so once you do that, leave the mystery out of it and make it a thriller and do what Gone Girl does and shows you, you know, eventually what both uh, halves of the equation are doing. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting uh, sort of dichotomy that you put between the mystery and the thriller, because I think a lot of what I would consider the thriller, or rather, rather what I would consider to not be the thriller, because the only thrilling thing is that you have one imaginary demon character, your psychopath. I mean, the traditional is the serial killer novel, right? In which uh, often the the, 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 the the author, for whatever idiot reason, decides that we're going to spend a lot of time in the serial killer's head or, you know, whatever. But it, where the, the presence of the serial killer is really foregrounded. And I guess you're right that those are structured like thrillers because they're not mysteries in any meaningful way. That's also where you get a lot of trail of clue, uh, you know, um, not trail of clues, but trail of uh, knots on the rope with which you are tugging the detective along. Uh, detective in quotes. Right. Um, and, and, but I think that the serial killer novel is its own uh, genre and its own, or subgenre, and its own so very stylized sort of thing that it's almost like saying, well, the, I don't feel the dramatic unities in this uh, kabuki play were were uh, were represented. I I object as a as a believer in in realist cinema to this kabuki event. I, I think that the serial killer story itself is so 
it, you know, it, it's so much of a campfire tale and so little of a literary construct that you can't really judge it by the same sorts of rules. And I think a lot of times you get mystery writers who don't understand that, or you get thriller writers who don't understand that, and therefore sort of want the, the demonic uh, zest of it without actually doing any of the of the rest of it. And that winds up just sort of wrecking a, an otherwise decent procedural. Right, because uh, I guess I would place the boundary between the mystery and the thriller um, on the definition of uh, Hitchcock's definition of suspense, right? Which is that mm -hmm. uh, if you just suddenly see a bomb blow up in a car, that's surprise. But if there's a sequence where you see the bomber place the bomb in the car and you're wondering whether it's going to go off and uh, kill the people you care about, that is suspense. And so when you're writing a mystery, you are all about the moment of revelation. And so the moment of revelation has to be more interesting when it's revealed, as I was suggesting earlier, than the uh, sort of tension that you get. And so uh, The Raven, for example, makes the mistake of using what should be a thriller structure, where if half the time you are following what the uh, killer is doing and uh, going back and forth and then seeing, you know, whether Poe and the, and the police lieutenant are able to stop him, uh, that then would have become a thriller and we wouldn't care so much. Uh, because you would reveal pretty early on who it was who was doing it. And that could have been a more interesting version of that. The more interesting version still was what the trailer was suggesting, which was that it was going to be uh, Edgar Allan Poe, a cult detective. But that would be a whole different uh, story. Yes. Yeah, I think that the the, the old uh, uh, sort of uh, sneering response to the thriller by people who write mysteries is that a thriller is a mystery in which the audience already knows who done it. Um, and I think that that's sort of an interesting thing to, to talk about in terms of the difference between those uh, two genres. I'm not sure that it's technically a plot fall of a mystery, because if you reveal who done it at the head, you might just be doing Columbo, right? And you're then doing the, the, uh, the mystery, literally, is how will the detective catch this guy? I mean, because to an extent, Columbo is, is still a mystery, and there are other novelistic uh, mysteries that work on that method. You see the bad guy commit the crime, and then you have to read about how the detective will catch the bad guy. And those are still mysteries. They're not thrillers, per se. And the reveal is actually harder, because you have to do it backwards, and you've lost some of the juice right. of it. Do you think that there's specific ways to make that uh, better or easier? Or do you think that that is, you know, you must be as tall as Peter Falk to ride this ride. Um, well, I think in a way that you've got a, a secret weapon on your side, which is that you now have suspense, right? That you have a mm -hmm. desire that you want to see fulfilled. Um, in any mystery, you want to see the detective figure out who the criminal was and catch them. But here, you have a more emotional connection to that because you've seen the bad guy do what he's doing, and now you really want to see them get their comeuppance. And so it becomes, a, I think, basically a more genteel cat and mouse thing where, uh, you know, the bad guy isn't necessarily sending uh, Columbo ahead in a cardboard box and daring him to figure out where, where he committed the crime. But if you know who did it ahead of time, you're just sort of enjoying the process by which the forces of order overcome the forces of disorder through the intellectual discoveries that the, the detective makes. And so in a way, that uh, gives you a whole level of different satisfactions so that when the detective goes off in the wrong direction and gets in danger, you're... Uh, uh, have this sort of cognitive dissonance that you want resolved. And then when they move toward solving the mystery, uh, you're uh, rooting for them again. So that structure is kind of a hybrid 
of the uh, thriller, which is more two opposing forces battling each other, uh, or, mm-hmm. well, or can be multiple forces, um, and right. the mystery where it's all about uh, finding what really happened, you know, one narrative that's all about unraveling another narrative. Um, and uh, I think we'll introduce another mystery if we keep going, which is the mystery of why we're keeping going. So it's time to head to our last segment. <laughs> the clacking of chronotons and the whirring of time gears tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine, the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to propel can back into history in order to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this week, we have a combo Ask Ken and Robin edition of Ken's Time Machine, in which friend of the podcast Donald Dennis asks the following. I'm convinced that the legend about the creation of the potato chip indicates the influence of a time traveler. Either the customer was a time traveler or had somehow been influenced by a time traveler. Is the global snack food industry funding an enemy time travel agency? And so can the legend of the beginning of the potato chip is uh, as it ought to be for something uh, so mythically resonant shrouded in legend? <laughs> it is indeed. Uh, basically, uh, the story goes that a half black, half Native American guy named George Crumb was uh, working in a kitchen at an upscale restaurant when a paragon of snooty authority in some versions of the tale it is cornelius vanderbilt himself uh, ordered potatoes uh, in a, a restaurant in new york in saratoga new york and he was given the potatoes and the customer demanded that the potatoes uh, be sliced thinner and sent them back again and again and again asking for them to be sliced thinner and that george crumb like any true exponent of the downtrodden marginalized proletariat uh, said screw you rich guy and thinned them super slight uh thinly and threw them in hot oil in order to to uh, give him an undigestible mess that would show him how unreasonable his request was but the customer loved the results because they were potato chips uh, first, known, first known as the saratoga chip uh, and then later uh, known as the potato chip because they were not made of Saratoga. Um, so uh, I guess Donald's assumption here is that someone encountered a timeline in which suddenly there weren't potato chips and then went back to make sure there, there uh, were. Ken, what, what is the, the real story behind this? Well, uh, first off, don't worry, good people. I am on the case. Uh, a world without potato chips is a world that we cannot contemplate as uh, civilized men, as Americans. And so, therefore, I made sure that there are other potato chips ready to go in case George Crumb is removed from the timeline. There are potatoes in uh, earlier American cookbooks in, 18, in the 1830s. The, the moment at which the potato, legend, the potato chip legend happens is 1854. There are potato shape, fried potato shavings that go back to American cookbooks uh, 20 years before that. So, potatoes... Are, are solid. <laughs> just just as a, as a side note, the current version of the Wikipedia article on George Crumb contains the words Illuminati confirmed 2K15, which I think points us perhaps towards the notion that maybe Beyonce is uh, somehow <laughs> involved in potato chips as well. So we, you talk about your belt and suspenders, my friend. Yeah. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, the potato chip is safe. 
Uh, George Crumb is uh, kind of an interesting character. He be- he began as a fry cook and became a uh, a restaurateur. Um, owned his own uh, restaurant in a resort hotel, uh, which is a pretty good gig in 1860 or now. Um, and so, you know, he is certainly prof- prospered and, pro- and profited by uh, his legendary invention, which he did not even take credit for. And given that he was an American and a restaurant owner, the fact that he didn't take credit for it is actually probably the biggest argument against him having done it that you could make. Potato chips are one of those inventions that obviously you find in the future and you bring as far back in in time as you possibly can. Um, I'm sure that if we give it another couple of hundred years, I'll get around to introducing them to Sir Walter Raleigh and... uh, people it uh and there will be a line somewhere in a later Shakespeare play about everyone crunching during the dialogue and that's how you will know right. um uh, that uh, potato chips have gotten back to Elizabethan England so you're you're not suggesting here that uh, you dressed up as Cornelius Vanderbilt and went and annoyed George Crumb I may or may not have dressed up as uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt but I know better than to annoy George Crumb he, he is a a, a tough minded fellow and would not take guff from me in a Cornelius Vanderbilt suit or not in a Cornelius Vanderbilt suit. I will point out, uh, for those who are curious, that the uh, August 24th, the day of the potato chips uh, legendary creation, is also uh, one of the three days in Roman calendar uh, ritual, the Roman ritual calendar, in which the door to the underworld is lifted off. And the door to the underworld is called the Mundus Seriris, which is to say the Pit of Ceres. And Ceres, of course, is the goddess of what? Of grain. And so, therefore, um, uh, potato chips are probably a supernatural imputation or have been designed to later be a supernatural imputation by selecting the legendary date uh, for their creation. And so, uh, there is uh, even stronger forces than myself and Beyonce, perhaps, at work on the potato chip. The potato chip is is triply uh, reinforced. Uh, so... Uh, the question of whether or not the international snack food industry is founding the mysterious time rival group that we see um, uh, the, the footprints of here and there in, in the in the chronosphere is a, is a different one. I would hate to believe that anyone who depends on potato chips could be working for the forces of evil. Although, obviously, you know there there is always the possibility that uh, baked potato chips might be behind it. Right. So if you're going to go back in time and investigate the... Do you feel that, in fact, that there uh, is a single origin point uh, for this or, uh, you know, even for, you know, the Manhattan or uh, there, there's all sorts of different food products, the, the Caesar salad, that all have a, a legend of their creation about them. And some are pretty well documented, but a lot of them are like sort of investigating the etymology of words is that the further you go into the story, the more uh, there is sort of a just so quality to it in which someone is obviously starting with a food uh, and then working backwards. And uh, you can probably assume that the Waldorf salad was uh, started at the Waldorf Hotel, but there's a lot of, for example, uh, cocktail origin stories where there's multiple claimants to a particular thing being found. Uh, do you think that if you went back in in time to, to 1853 that you would actually uh, see anything at all or that you would find a plate of potato chips already there and uh, uh, perhaps someone with a, a clever marketing scheme uh, sitting in the corner? The potato chips, they were not on the menu at, uh, at Crumb's restaurant, his, his later restaurant. Whether or not you would necessarily see them in the same way that you see tortilla chips at a Tex-Mex restaurant just out on the table is kind of an interesting question. I think the potato chip specifically is one of those things that is going to get invented 
you know, over and over. The Manhattan is another great example. It's, you know, whiskey, sweet vermouth, and bitters. No one has to invent that. Obviously, there is at some point that it was invented because the Angostura bitter has a beginning moment in time, but there were previous bitters before the Angostura bitter, and almost literally the definition of a cocktail is spirit, sugar, and bitters. So I don't think that you can you can pin down the Manhattan like you're talking about. I, th- I think that some of these things, though, um, the Waldorf salad, the Caesar salad, the Reuben sandwich, those probably do have, have an origin. There, there is a moment at which the Reuben is created that you could go to. It's at the Blackstone Hotel in Omaha, if anyone is curious. Um, but the potato chip, I, I really think, you know, the, the notion that the, the fried potato shavings show up over the next 30 years, I think that there's just a point at which there are enough potatoes around and that there is enough spare oil for deep frying, which is something that is not going to have been super common um, uh, in, in earlier times when you had to render your oil out of, out of the sheep or whatever. Um, but once you've got peanut oils and you've got, uh, corn oils and things like that, you're able to, um, do deep frying on a, on a, on a broader basis. So sometime around when it happened, I think it's going to be happening a bunch of different places. And the fun thing about the, the legend is that the potato chip is important enough to get an origin story, right? It used to be that, you know, you'd have, you know, you, you'd write your series character, and then you'd go back and you'd write his origin story, and that's how you knew he was an important season char- season series character, is you had to go back and write his origin story. And so I think that the potato chip having a legend is more important than the specific legend of the potato chip. Right. Uh, and so is there a particular food item that you would want to go back in time and uh, discover the, the provenance of, or are these all more fun as uh, legends than if you actually did say for sure, oh, well, that, you know, the Nanaimo bar was um, invented by this person then, there's not actually uh, a story to it. Or, for example, here, in order to make this story interesting, uh, you need not only the potato chip, but you need this sort of uh, inverse kind of ironic uh, morality tale, although I'm not sure what the what the moral of the story is, except, you know, uh, the 1% gets what it wants, even <laughs> though you try to screw with them. Well, I mean, the Cornelius Vanderbilt is, it was a very late addition to the story. I mean, he doesn't show up until 1973 when a company that was actually celebrating its, uh, making potato chip bags took out an ad in, I think, Fortune magazine and sort of said, here's the story of the potato chip and how it came to be. And they thought, well, it's no fun if he's just, um, uh, serving burned potatoes to some dolt in Saratoga, New York. It has to be a famous dolt. And they picked Vanderbilt as sort of the representational figure of, of guys. But the notion that, you know, I, I don't even know if, if this begins as a revenge story or if it begins as a, as, as one of those, you know, sort of uh, happy accident type stories like penicillin. You know, you, I just, had them in, and then it turned out, or the, or the legend of the buffalo wing, right? That the anchor bar was snowed in, and all they could get was uh, hot sauce, butter, uh, chicken wings, celery, and, and cheese. And so they said, well, I don't know what you can make with that. Try making, you know, make what you can, and it became the buffalo wing. Um, in, in terms of what I would go back and find, I want to find who named the egg cream. I, I, I assume that the egg cream itself is, is one of those things that is made a, a bunch of different times in a bunch of different places, but I want to know why it's called the egg cream. There are a million 
explanations for it. None of them make a lick of sense. I just want to <laughs> go back. And, of course, the trouble is that as the time traveler, you run the risk of, of uh, drinking the thing as you're going back in time and saying, this is the best egg cream I've ever had. And the guy's saying, yeah. that's a good name for it, son. Yeah. <laughs> like the old third murderer explanation. Why? I think you did, sir. <laughs> is that the, the identity of the third murderer is the time traveler who went back to ask Shakespeare who played the third murderer. <laughs> yeah. You look up on the wall and there's a photo of you drinking uh, an egg cream. Ah, uh, damn it. It took it from my bad side, my future side. <laughs> <laughs> but the egg cream is is the one that drives me bananas because it's it's it 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 makes literally no sense that it would be called the egg cream. Famously, there's no eggs in it and no cream. I I can understand why you'd say cream because it has milk and you're lying. That's that's I, that makes total sense. But where why you drag the egg into it is the thing that just I I have no I have no idea why you would do that. That's what I want to go hunt. Plus, it'd be fun to wander around Brooklyn in 1901 or whenever it is drinking egg creams. I think that'd just be fun by itself. Right. Well, you would assume that there's some sort of evolutionary process where there are precursor beverages, mm-hmm. and one of them had an egg in it at one point, and it was the egg something else, and then they decided to improve it, but it reminded people of the egg something else. And so, uh, you know, sort of like the phenomenon by which unrelated animals uh, get the same name in North America as they had back home because they, they look sort of similar. So that would be my guess, that you'd have to keep going back and uh, you'd... Uh, Oh, well, we call it the egg cream because uh, it's based on the egg fizz. And uh, for a while, the egg cream had an egg in it, but then we decided it was better. But people didn't want to order an egg cream uh, without e- an egg in it, so we just didn't tell them there wasn't an egg in it. It's probably something like that, right? Yeah, I mean, there's the, the explanation, like you say, there's the possibility that it's based on an English uh, dessert called the egg brin, and that they just made a thing that was like it but with no egg. And the, the other thing that it was maybe echt cream, meaning really good cream right. or genuine cream, which is stupid. Um, <laughs> so I, I, you know, because if you, you know, you talk, you talk about your, you know, things no one has ever done. Uh, no one has ever marketed a beverage that was uh, called genuine cream and had no, I mean, it, 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 it just, it's, it's, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, it, it just makes no sense. So the, um, uh, so the egg cream origin is something that I want to go hunt down. I also kind of want to find there's a there's a big fight between Britain and America over who invented soft serve ice cream, and I think that would be a fun one to to, to track down. I'm pretty sure it was America because um, uh, it's America, but the British <laughs> seemed very uh, very insistent on it, and it and so there's there there's sort of a a, a technological um, uh, uh, jiggery pokery involved. That's something that you you can't have had soft serve ice cream before a certain point in time. And that might be uh, fun to track down. And that could be a case of uh, the movie camera, right? Where once the technology became available, it was essentially discovered yeah. uh, pretty quickly in parallel by a bunch of uh, different people. But it was sort of the uh, or television. kind of the inevitable result of these uh, new components that mm-hmm. eventually they were going to get thrown together. And in fact, they they did by different people at the same time, roughly. Yeah. I, I think that there's there's certainly, you know, at, at some level, it's not uh, super hard to understand that mostly melty ice cream is 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 got a, a tasty wonderfulness all of its own and uh, try and package that. And it's just a matter of how you do it. Uh, so are there other uh, food mysteries you would go back in time for? I guess uh, classical scholars would want you to go back and bring back a sample of Roman garum mm-hmm. because uh, we know uh, roughly what it was, but nobody knows exactly uh, what it contained. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's basically, I suspect that if you go back and you get your garum, it's going to be like a thicker version of uh, 
Thai fish sauce, like the Nam Pla or Vietnamese fish sauce. But it's going to be like that. Like, if you look at anchovy paste, I'll bet it's anchovy paste that tastes like Nam Pla is pretty much what garum is. What I want to find out, actually, is Silphium, which is an extinct plant that, uh, if you look at the Roman depictions of it, it looks sort of like fennel, maybe, but you don't know that. It also sort of looks like broccoli, and it sort of looks like a triffid while I'm talking about what it sort of looks like. Um, but it's a plant that was so popular as a seasoning and as a medicine that the Romans made it extinct. They ate it to death. And so I think that you want to go back and you want to find out what silphium is if you're wandering around Rome uh, having your candied lark's heads and whatnot. I, I think that, uh, that the silphium might, you know, give me a, a big silphium salad. And, and see what that's about. I mean, it might have been terrible because, you know, whatever they're... Because they liked garum. Because so. they liked garum. Well, I mean, again, although, if it's anchovy paste that tastes like Thai fish sauce, so. that is pretty good. Yeah. And if you're eating a lot of um, uh, sort of badly milled wheat, uh, something that's that's got a, a really strong uh, meat and fish flavor component, but you can still mix it into your to your equivalent of terrible quinoa, that that might be a that might not be a bad thing to do. Um, but I do want to I, I do want to know about that, and I want to know exactly we we think that we know that all uh roman and greek wines were full of resin were full of pine resin so they all tasted like ouzo and i want to know they didn't really put resin in all their wine because that's stupid why would you do that i mean why would you set out to make your wine worse is it a is it a thing that they have to do it to, to prevent it from from spoiling what's the point with the resining wine did they resin all of it? I want to know about their, their wine growth. If you, if you own the south of France, for God's sake, you own the Rhone Valley, why are you putting resin in that wine? I could say, all right, maybe you have to put resin in the wine in Samothrace or somewhere, but come on, man. This is crazy talk. Uh, or maybe it was uh, more of a, a light sort of trace element because uh, there are some retzinas that are uh, quite nice. And so that could also be an explanation just that that's, that's what the taste was, right? That somebody tried it without it and everyone went, this is crap. This doesn't. This is not remotely piney. Do you call this wine? <laughs> I, I I can't imagine polishing furniture with this at all. Take this away. Uh, yeah, because it, it was an earlier thing where for that in order to create the uh, the fermentation that they initially needed all of these different uh, sort of plant elements, which gradually over the course of time, different winemaking cultures were able to uh, filter out and mostly get rid of. Although there are still some other trace elements in. Uh, uh, you know, wines made today, like a little bit of egg and so forth, mm -hmm. but uh, that's the... Sulfites and whatnot. Yeah, and originally uh, a chemically necessary ingredient, but you can well envision that if people's taste buds are uh, oriented in a particular direction, that uh, no one's going to, uh, especially in cultures where, you know, you're not looking to innovate the way that uh, we have since the beginning of this sort of food explosion and the wake of the Industrial Revolution, that uh, it's just not going to necessarily occur to anybody to potentially waste a whole lot of grapes by uh, trying it without the resin. Yeah, and again, I mean, palates are different. Anyone who's eaten candy in Germany knows that their their palate is is different than the palate of an American. And maybe resonated wines go really well with garum. Maybe they do. That, that that's the secret. You get your garum, you get your silphium, you get your resonated wine. You are pretty much set for life. That's the bacon and eggs and French toast of ancient times. Uh, well, I don't think we've uh, even uh, necessarily sent you on a mission this time around. Although I guess we've sent you to get to garum and silphium and, uh, yeah, and potato find chips. out where they stop resonating the wine. And so I guess we've sent you on a whole bunch of different missions, really. So yeah, I mean the the, the notion of, of food being important in history is is maybe for a different hut or a different discussion because obviously the Colombian exchange, uh, just the the, the notion that. Uh, 
there are chilies in Chinese cuisine, that there is corn in Chinese cuisine, that there's tomatoes in Italian cuisine. All that is is a historically contingent moment. And um, uh, people, you know, there's a lot of things that happen with, with food in history. The potato has a giant socioeconomic and political impact, as well as also being shaven up into crisps. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff that you can talk about uh, in terms of the the history-changing moments of food. But generally, uh, just like when you go to another country, uh, going to another time, uh, eating the local cuisine adds to the to the, sur- the the feel of the surroundings, but it doesn't necessarily you know alter the the course of battle one way or the other. Well, I don't know if I'm particularly uh, hungry for garum or sylphium or uh, maybe even like a nice retzina, but uh, I think it's time to. Uh, head off into my pantry and see what might be there. So I guess it's time to conclude yet another episode of Ken and Robin Talks About Stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Plot Points. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep our potato chips crisp and our crisps potato by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or corral by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>